Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. So, let's begin. Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. This week, I was looking at some figures for the national grid energy intake in the United Kingdom. And when we think about energy supply, the proportions involved are quite interesting. And what we have is hydroelectric and wind power making up 3.5%, and that's the green energy. Then we have solar photovoltaic, 21%, and other sources, including biomass at 5.9%. Nuclear energy makes up 14%, but by far the biggest Supply of energy comes from fossil fuels still, 46.5% gas and 2.2% coal. Now, that still means that we've got roughly 50% of the national energy coming from fossil fuel. So the CO2 targets to have net zero emissions by 2050 are still very ambitious, if you look at this. And in the last week... The National Grid had to bring on and fire up a a coal-fired supply because it was running short. So that filled in the gap of about 2.2% that was needed during that period. So it just shows how dependent we still are on fossil fuels for energy supply. And of course, one of the reasons as well is that if you don't use coal in that case, you'd be paying gas prices, and gas prices are now astronomical, So, and they're imported, so so that would be uh, problematic for the cost. So that's where we are. I was interested to read this week that, uh, according to The Guardian, the British supermarket chain Marks & Spencer branded the EU's Brexit border controls pointless bureaucracy. And the UK government is considering delaying checks on food imports amid fears of mounting pressure on supermarkets and supplies running up to Christmas. Well, I can tell you now that today I just heard that they've actually put back those border controls and they're not going to implement them until January at the earliest. So, that's good news, I think. But uh, some business leaders have said that scrapping the rules for importers' products, including meat, eggs, fish, on the 1st of October won't solve the problem of the shortage in food because it's not food supplies that are in short supply, but it's lorry drivers to deliver them. Well, that's quite a bold statement. But I think there is growing concern about the lorry driver shortage in the UK and That is something that the government do need to fix. And I'll say a little bit more about that later in this episode. Archie Norman, who's the chair of Marks & Spencer, told LBC Radio that rules on exports due to be mirrored on imports from Ireland and the continent have added 24 hours of delays, and they serve no purpose at all. Food standards remain aligned to the EU, so it's a pointless exercise. So you can see the frustration involved in supply chains and it does seem unnecessary bureaucracy, I have to say. Ian Wright of the Food and Drinks Federation says that the big importers, such as the supermarkets, are already prepared for those checks. So pushing them back will help the smaller food suppliers in France, Spain and elsewhere and in the EU where they're not ready 
for the checks. But I think this bureaucracy is a problem. And I think we've been working hard in supply chains for many years to keep them frictionless. And what we're doing with all this bureaucratic nonsense is putting false barriers in place that make them frictionful. And I wrote about this quite some time ago in my blog, the Tony Hines blog. So you can take a look at that. It's quite old now, but it's uh, it was when we were moving up to Brexit. So, yep. It's the great Brexit problem yet again. The Office for National Statistics published some interesting figures this week on Britain's trade with the European Union for July. Exports were driven £1.7 billion lower than in July 2018 due to the pandemic and imports falling by £3 billion, according to the official data. They say the fall was largely driven by declines in medicinal and pharmaceutical products, which have been particularly hit by the need for separate regulatory approval post-Brexit. The concern is that uh, it could be a sign of the UK losing competitiveness During July, exports for items such as precious metals fell by £300 million. At the same time, exports to non-EU countries increased by £700 million, not enough to compensate for the overall fall of about £900 million. Imports to the UK fell by £2.9 billion and exports, £1.7 And apparently I was reading, I think it was today, that uh, earlier today, that um, apparently the United Kingdom is no longer one of the top three traders with Germany. So that's interesting in itself. Disappointing and interesting. What's hoped here is that this isn't a permanent situation, It's just temporary, but uh, the concern would be if it lasts. The sharp rebound in purchases after lockdown is putting further pressure on shipping, moving goods from China to the United States and Europe. We've got bigger ships, we've got these 40-foot containers, the price of boxes is sky high. And yet, there's still a problem in shipping. And as I mentioned in previous article, we have the perfect storm happening in this area. So we've got ships queuing at ports in the United States. I read a couple of days ago that Los Angeles was choked with ships waiting to unload and delays at ports can be anything up to two weeks at present and what happens when we have these delays is that ships get stuck uh, they can't return to the 
destination port until they're unloaded and cleared to go. And if that takes longer, ships are in the wrong place, boxes are in the wrong place, can't get the boxes back to the ports, puts further pressure on the price of boxes, and so on. But when I mentioned the perfect storm, I was talking about the lorry driver crisis as well. And the in the United Kingdom, we've got the Brexit bureaucracy. Uh, but there's all sorts of things. There's a flux of things going on at the same time. And if you listen to Empty Shells for Christmas, you'll get the flavour of some of those problems in shipping in a bit more detail. We should be under no illusion that time, cost and quality are essentials in the supply chain. And when we manage supply chains, we manage risk, complexity and we manage networks of suppliers that might be located anywhere in the world. But the thing that struck me towards the end of the global pandemic, and when I say the end, I mean the opening up of economies again, I don't necessarily mean that the pandemic has gone away. It's still there, obviously, and it's more important in some countries than others where vaccinations aren't available. But when we think about supply chains, we haven't really, in the past 30 years, had to think too much about geography, the geography of those supply chains. Because distances became irrelevant as time was compressed and you could actually save time in the global operation by moving goods from anywhere in the world to the market where it was required. It might take a shorter time period than ordering locally. So the local national, international markets almost became seamless. And what I mean by that is that the time was compressed as logistics operations worked to maximum efficiency to move goods to where they were needed and helped the just-in-time supply chains that many organisations were operating. That's manufacturing, retailing and other organisations were just in time, became a significant part of the business strategy. Now I've also read in the newspapers and listened to people commentate in recent weeks that just in time supply chains are dead. Well, I think they've got this wrong. I don't think they are. I think it's not a strategy for everybody, but I think just-in-time supply chains have major benefits to organisations 
by lowering cost of inventories and by ensuring other factors such as problems in shrinkage are alleviated, problems in breakages or deterioration while you hold inventories is removed and just in time means that you're not tying up your working capital and it means that you're able to get the goods when you need them. And supplier agreements in just-in-time systems will remain for many organisations. And I think once we can see clear water between the pandemic and the new trading operations, just-in-time systems will be part of the toolkit. But it's not just just-in-time or JIT systems. It's agility, and we've talked about agility quite a bit in relation to risk management. If your supply chains can be agile, you can obviously lower risks through that agility by predicting the unpredictable, as I said in one of my earlier podcasts. And if you think about that, then I'm guessing for some organisations, geography's back on the table. Because for 30 years, we weren't concerned too much with the geography. We were interested in time. And we were interested in lowering cost in the total supply chain. And we were interested in selecting suppliers that could meet the standards required. So if you think about that, And think about the situation now. We've got the crisis in shipping with ships at ports queued. We've got the box problem that we need lots of container boxes and they've got to be in the right places to pick up the goods. We've got the road distribution systems geared to pick up containers at ports and move them to where they're required in the country. And we've got rail systems that move goods supplies around and in many countries canal systems that move supplies around still. And there's air freight of course. Air freight has been operating but much lower levels during the past couple of years but that will pick up again as economies open up. But the question is for those logistical companies they must be quite concerned right now at the rethink that will be going on in many organisations to replan their supply chains to make them more resilient. So as they begin to plan to make supply chains resilient and lower their own risk, it puts at risk the shippers, the truckers, the rail networks and the air freighters. In other words, all of the logistics transport industry will have to assess their own risks. So here's a scenario. Supposing a number of large companies decide it's no longer viable to procure goods and ship them from China and the Far East. And they decide to move production centres much nearer to their home markets. That changes completely the geography of supply chains. And all those companies that have set up their air fleets, 
the shipping fleets, the container boxes, the truck operations to move goods from ports may suddenly find that that geography has increased risk for them. Now, clearly, it's not just geography. It's the economics of the geography. It's the cost, profit, volume, ratios involved. And if you give that a little thought, the transport economics are part of it. It's the proportion of the overall cost that's important here. If you're going to have supplies coming from countries at distance, you know you've got to pay transport, and those transport costs are going to be higher than they would be if you have local supply. But more concerning for big companies at the moment is the fact that they just can't get the goods when they want them. So there's the risk of not having goods to sell to customers. So there's some trade-offs that will have to be made in order to change the economics and the geography of the situation. But it is a risk. It is about agility. It is about cost. It is about uncertainty. And it's about making that uncertainty less. Now here's the thing. What could governments be doing to overcome the HGV lorry driver shortage? Well, they could be doing a lot more than they are. So let's think about some of those things. Well, first of all, what about having more than 1% of female lorry drivers? There are many people that want to do this job, and many of them are females. And it brings all kinds of benefits and flexibility to young female HGV drivers. And the people who do it say they love it. So, why not train them? Why not get the licenses quickly, do some fast tracking, and make sure that they're on equal pay? And that would be a really good start. And instead of the DBLA taking months to issue licences, perhaps they could do that a bit faster too. The hauliers have given reasons for the driver shortage. They say drivers are retiring. They've left to go back home to the EU. The IR35 issue has been a problem where drivers have been self-employed. Drivers have decided to leave the industry for whatever reason. The pay rates aren't as attractive as they ought to be. COVID-19 has made them rethink their position and there have been other reasons too. Young people are definitely interested but they're also put off by the costs involved of becoming a qualified driver. It can cost three to five thousand pounds for training and tests. So why don't the industry put some money towards this? And why is there not a tax training allowance so that people can get qualified? Because after all, that makes sense. Because once they're qualified, they can pay taxes. So get them in. Let them do it. If they want to be drivers, get them in and let them be drivers. Industry bodies like Logistics UK have been lobbying the government to create temporary visas for HGV drivers from EU countries. And this is a good short-term solution. While we get 
the young drivers and the female potential drivers trained up and the recruitment gets better. It's more attractive for people to join in and they're not put off by the cost of training. Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, the temperature's really rising in the supply chain this week, and it's all to do with CO2. Two fertilizer companies in the United Kingdom have stopped production because... Yes, gas prices are too high. And it's gas that they use for the production of fertiliser, and they've stopped production because it's too expensive. Now, you wouldn't think that would be such a problem, because climate activists go on all the time about not using fertiliser and reducing CO2. But actually, the food supply chain uses CO2 in different ways. It uses CO2 to prepare animals for slaughter. It uses CO2 to package the meat, taking the air out of packaging materials and keeping it oxygen-free so as it lasts longer. And they use CO2 in the cold supply chain to refrigerate and store meat. So it's a problem when it goes missing. And Ian Wright of the Food and Drinks Federation has said that it will only take a few days, perhaps 10 at most, before empty shelves appear in supermarkets with regard to meat. So, as if we haven't got enough disruption with the HGV shortages, the labour shortages, the Brexit paraphernalia, and now here we have gas prices rising astronomically, four or five times the price they were just a few months ago. The average gas price, as I said earlier, was about £40 for the past 10 years or so per therm, and now it's four or five times that price. And it's due to a number of factors. North Sea Gas has lowered production to carry out maintenance that was delayed during COVID-19. The Russians have reduced supply from their sources to Europe, pushing prices up. And there is additional demand as the world goes back to economic activity post-COVID. I say post-COVID, of course, it's not over yet, but uh, factories and production has increased in the past month or so. So all those factors together create the perfect storm for yet another supply chain disruption. Watch this space. Interestingly, one of the things that energy companies do to mitigate the risk from price rises related to gas is what most organisations do when there are supply chain shortages. They tend to hold some buffer stock and they tend to buy forward to hedge their bets to reduce risk of future periods. But that has to be done in advance of the crisis, of course. And one of the things I was staggered to find out was that we only hold about no more than 12 days, 10 or 12 days worth of gas in the United Kingdom based on average demand at any one time. So actually the storage 
capacity is quite low. And in comparison to other countries, it does appear substantially low. I think it's about 2% in the United Kingdom, whereas it's about 10% or so in Germany and 16% in Italy. So other countries seem to hold far more gas supply than the United Kingdom. So perhaps that's an area for policymakers to look at when it comes to ensuring supply for gas. So I'll see you next time in the Chain Reaction Podcast. All about Supply Chain Advantage. Bye for now. You've been listening to Chain Reaction, all about Supply Chain Advantage, written and presented by Tony Hines.